0: So how does somebody who came to the United States at the age of seven from India, got an undergraduate degree in engineering, and then went to law school and practiced law, end up being a writer, a novelist, writing really powerful literary novels about deeply complex things? Well, that is exactly the journey of my guest today, Shoba Rao. It was a pleasure to really sort of explore this entire journey. Her latest book, Girls Burn Brighter, is a really powerful, provocative, raw look at the experience of women, in particular women of color, and the lives that they live in different countries and what sometimes happens um, when they come here. While it is a novel, it speaks to a lot of very real things that happen out in the world. We spend most of our time tracing Shoba's journey from... India through the early days here, her absolute love affair with literature and books and language, and how she then uh, made the decision to explore engineering and then law and become a strong advocate for women and how that has all informed her as a writer and actually why she then made the jump to become a full-time writer and a novelist and now a teacher as well really excited to share Shobarao and her really beautiful journey. I'm Jonathan Fields and this is Good Life Project. You are on the, the tail end, or a couple months after, gripping, upsetting, provocative book is out that we will talk about a little bit further into the conversation also, uh, okay career as a writer, a teacher. I want to take a big step back in time and figure out, you know, like, where did you come from? Where does all of your your exploration, your writing, all this interest come from? You were born originally in India.
1: That's right. Um, yeah. So I was born in India. I'm actually from South India, but I was born in North India where my dad was uh, was teaching. And I was in India until about the age of seven. And then we moved to the United States.
0: What? Tell me about your family a little bit um, in in the early days in India.
1: Um, Well, you know, it was kind of an idyllic childhood. It was a, a college. It was a bigger town called Kanpur. And my dad worked at one of the premier engineering technical schools in the country called Indian Institute of Technology. And, you know, I just remember growing up with lots of friends and, you know, this uh, a really great school that was run by the university for the children of the professors um, and staff. And I remember a very sort of earthy childhood, right? So playing in the dirt and uh, collecting little berries off the trees and, you know, upsetting the insects. <laughs> so and making little clay figurines to play with. So, it, you know, it was kind of a very sort of, of of the earth and quite bucolic in some ways, even though it was in a larger town, my existence felt really protected and insular and, and quite forested
0: in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, what happens uh, when you're around seven that actually brings your family to the U.S. then?
1: Um, so my father uh, got a fellowship at NASA. Um, uh-huh. since so He's an engineer. Got it. And so we moved for a one-year fellowship and that became, you know, sort of extended into a a longer and then a right.
0: longer and longer stay. Okay. So you're seven years old. Your yes. dad comes home from work one day and says, Shoba, <laughs> I have some news. How does that land with you at that age?
1: You know, I don't recall the moment yeah. that, you know, it was announced to me or that, you know, I was made aware that we were moving to America But I do remember the feeling of it, right, more than the moment of it. So I remember thinking that we were going to go on a grand adventure, and I had no idea where America was. Like, you know, I must have looked at a map, but I don't recall. All I remember thinking is, or understanding, is that here was India, and then there was a creek that kind of flowed between the two countries, and then on the other side
0: of the creek, (laughs) yeah.
1: Indeed, and that holds for anywhere in the world, right? There's just a, a body of water between us, you know, any two places, or maybe any two people as well. So um, that was my image that I carried into America, truly. And nobody sort of disabused me of it, uh, which I'm thankful for, <laughs> right? Because it just didn't feel as dramatic, or that it didn't, I didn't realize I was leaving behind a life and a country. Uh, You know, it just felt kind of seamless and, and, you know... uh,
0: Like it was just an adventure to a new place. Exactly. Exactly. So where did you actually... Where was the first place that your family landed?
1: In Hampton, Virginia, where Langley, Nasa Langley is. Got it. Yeah.
0: What was that like for you? Did you you speak English at that point?
1: You know, not very well. Um, In fact, I might have just known uh, a few words, really, because we were taught in Hindi, um, which is the national language in India... And then my family, our mother tongue is Telugu, which is a South Indian language of Andhra Pradesh, which is where we're from. And so those were the dominant languages in my childhood. Certainly English was ever-present, and I did study it. And, you know, India was colonized by the British, so it, it's kind of the unofficial, uh, and was, I should say, the unofficial predominant language. Right. But I don't remember really knowing that much. I feel like all of it I learned after arriving. What I do recall, you know, we we got here in January. Um So it was cold. Oh, so you're in
0: Virginia in January. Yes. Coming from, from, from southern India, which is the warmest part of the country. Well,
1: we, well, you know, I was actually coming from northern <laughs> India, right? Okay, right, right. But, but still, Even that cell, kind right. of bitter cold, I was completely uh, unaware of. I had no idea how to deal with it. But as a child, what sort of, uh, was just a revelation was snow. Mm. I remember the first time it started falling, it must've just been a few days after we got there and I just ran out into it. I was in no way equipped to deal with the snow. Like I had no mittens, no, you know, sort of not even proper socks, let alone like a hat and all that. And yet I just stood in the magnificence of this thing falling from the sky that was just so perfect and just, um, you know, in its way very much a gift and it it still feels like that to me when it snows. It's just as as if it's just a sort of a I don't know a miraculous sort of gift that's just floating down from the sky. I mean, how is it even possible? When you, <laughs> I still wonder.
0: I I love the sort of uh, embrace of the childlike wonder around it. Um, yeah, I still kind of feel the same way actually. And funny enough, I, I have a teenage daughter. And when it snows out, like it, the minute it starts to legitimately snow in New York, she's like, dad, we need to be outside. <laughs> yes. No. There's something about it. There's yes. And do you. Basketball.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm not, if, if I feel like if you are not just completely in awe of snow, then I'm suspicious of you. I mean, I just I just don't there's understand how you can just take it for granted and be like, oh, it's snowing. You know, I feel like the there's such a stillness and such a profound silence that takes over the world and then just sort of just drifts down. And um I was here when it snowed uh I think a couple of days before Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I just I must spend hours just sitting by the window and then running out and then running back in and then sitting by the window and then just doing this constant sort of embrace
0: yes. of snow. It's amazing. Yeah. Were you a kid who was in touch with wonder?
1: That's a, a fine question. I Yes, I do believe so. I don't think I've ever had much of a choice in the matter. Wonder seems something that's wired into me, like just a state of wonder. Walking here... Um, after I came up came up out of the subway stop, I saw this tree along um Central Park West that all its, you know, leaves had fallen off and the limbs were completely bare, except it had these red berries studded along its, you know, limbs. And I just stared at and I'm like, How beautiful. Like you've lost all of your other clothing. And then you yet you retain this beautiful little bulbs of uh you know, kind of a blistering red. It was just lovely, and I just stopped. It just stopped me in my tracks. And how can we be fully human? How how can we fully be human if we don't have a a deep, enduring appreciation of the everyday wonder? Then it's just a very sad way to live, a sad way to get through the day.
0: I I couldn't agree with you more, and yet we live at a time... (laughs) where the pace of life seems to only get faster and our heads seem to be increasingly just buried in whatever device is in any given hand for whatever free time it's funny i catch myself waiting uh you know like on any given line in new york city and i i, I am now trained so like as soon as you know, like there's a pause you know, like I, uh-huh. I feel myself reaching for something and i'm and i keep i'm trying to be really mindful and intentional and say mm-hmm just just let it, like put it back in your pocket let go of the impulse deep breathe through it whatever i need to do <laughs> you know the the urge will pass the the addiction is real but I, can, I i'll be okay and just kind of like look around just take in the moment because there's something about it that's different than every other moment um and if we don't actually just pause to to observe it it's it's gone and it's not like i think so many people go on search like go on journeys in search of wonder yeah only you know, like to discover it's it's all around us every moment, of every day.
1: Oh, absolutely! And one of the greatest decisions I ever made was to not to, not to get a smartphone. Um, so to, to this day, I don't have a smartphone. Are you
0: like old school flip phone or something?
1: I well, actually, I ended up just walking into the AT and T store and saying, "What is your free phone? What is the cheap one, the free one?" And so they just handed me. It actually looks like it, it's a smartphone, but it just just there's no data yeah. plan. That decision alone has been um like a saving grace of sorts i i i and i do mean grace you know because i'm i feel like i am more connected to what's what's going on around me you know if i'm sitting on a subway or at the subway stop i'm i'm looking you know i'm looking like we used to look you know um and and not to romanticize a kind of uh, past in which we perhaps we were more disconnected with what was going on in the world or uh, the sort of ways in which people were much more aware of how people are being treated and the traumas and the, mm. you know, wars. And, you know, we we have the visuals now, we have the internet and, you know, there's a power in the knowing and the seeing. But on the other hand, there's also an incredible amount of, engagement with ourselves and and with the world that's lost if we're constantly staring at the phone and so the world's actually uh in a lovely still in that lovely sort of slowness for me um and you know i don't i don't i think the only time i've wished for a phone is maybe one a smartphone i should say is once when i was perhaps lost driving and i didn't you know have any directions um but once in, you know, what, 10
0: years is,
1: is, right. is not and enough. It's like you
0: have to do that horrible, awful thing, which is ask somebody. It's like, oh, my God, a stranger.
1: <laughs> and I do. I stop at gas stations and ask.
0: But how amazing is it also that uh, um, my mind is spinning on like all this or like, okay, where do you take this from here? Because it's like, okay, so not only do you come out of the subway and see this beautiful barren tree, but but somehow like with populated by all these beautiful red berries, but Instead of, if you had a smartphone in your pocket and it was something that you, you activated and interacted with all day, very likely that your next instinct would be, what filter will I use to capture this? <laughs> and then post it on Instagram. Right. So instead of, instead of going into like that analytical, how do I capture and share this? How do I make it look good? Right. You're just sitting there and saying, how beautiful.
1: Jonathan, I didn't even think of taking out my phone and taking a picture. I love that I it did you nah. just you were you were speaking and it didn't even it, that it just didn't occur to me I don't have Instagram I have you know uh, I don't I, it just didn't occur to me nah. and so I think that um, this this you know capture and release thing that's constantly happening in our world is um, you know you wonder what does it exist for does it exist to just be you know to just be gazed upon. Or does it exist to be sort of disseminated through social media and, and get and accrue likes and you know whatever? And so I am of the former camp, you know, yeah. just gays. I,
0: I am too, um, but I'm still fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I keep swearing to. I keep swearing. I am going to give up my smartphone, just go back to an old school flip phone. And in fact, I have increasing number of friends who are doing exactly that. Yeah. And, and they have people around them who kind of know if, if there's something urgent where I really need to be reached, you know, like there are people who know how to get in touch with them or pass critical information to them. Yeah. But, um, they just want to, you know, be there to observe the world and to do, especially a lot of creative types, um, and CEOs that I know, they know that, that they're, they do their best work when they can just be present in the work and only the work that they want to do and do it at the highest possible level and feel fully expressed and present in that. And, and they also know and are very aware of the fact that they cannot; they don't have the self-regulation to right. resist it if it's there within. Right. I'm the same way. I'm raising my <laughs> hand right there, so they literally just they change the environment. They just remove the device from their environment.
1: That's right, and it's a like a, a deep awareness uh, that that's required to say, you know what, I'm going to cut this umbilical cord. Yeah, you know, it's not needed. And in fact, as you say, the best work is done when it that distraction, which is really all it is nah. right At fundamentally um when we remove that distraction from our sort of uh everyday life and you know there's also this sense that i get from friends or you know just observing in the world that there's that the people think that things will be lost right if they don't sort of capture it in the moment that rainbow or that you know dog doing that very cute thing and you know and and I'm a firm believer that nothing is lost, that it enters our consciousness and it somehow will deeply sort of exist inside of us and that it is nothing is lost, mm. right? And certainly as a writer, I've found that when I am writing, I conjure up images from decades ago that I you know, I haven't thought about, or um, I find that... An event or a conversation will come back to me, and shape the writing. And so I know, I know that nothing is lost, and I trust in that. I trust in it to inform my writing and inform my journey as a human being.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, my my sense is that if something is, if something is powerful enough uh, to move you, to mm-hmm. change you. Um, then it stays with you, but it only stays with you if you give it your present awareness on the level where you're moved emotionally, because then it, it embeds itself, like it becomes embodied. You know, yes. and we know through science now that you know when there's the more there's emotion in the context of a, a circumstance or an event, the more it's sort of burned into your memory, the more there's recall. So if you're at a concert, you know, and you've got your cell phone up there and your main thing is like, let me record this for right. my friends you know, maybe now you're 50% emotionally present because now you're just focused on taping and doing all this stuff. Right. So it's like, it's not, it's almost like you're not allowing yourself the, the, the ability to emotionally invest in the experience on a level which will allow you to be moved you know, and to be changed and for you to, to recall it.
1: Absolutely. And the more of your senses that are engaged, mm. the better the chances and the better the, the level of observation and the level of internalization, right? So if I had actually reached out and touched the berries, I probably would have remembered it even more. If I had smelled them, if I had tasted them. I don't know if I tasted
0: them in New York City, maybe somewhere else, but that was a really dangerous move.
1: <laughs> Understood. Point well taken. But, you know, I mean, the more of our senses yeah. that we can engage in any given moment, the more it'll penetrate our, our uh, deepest self. Yeah. And, um, I, I live by that.
0: So, so now I'm really curious because, um, and we're going to talk about this and then jump back in time, but, but let's go there while it's sort of in my mind. One of the things you're doing right now is teaching freshmen in college Mm -hmm. who have come up basically attached to a device and largely detached from the world around them. So how do you, as a teacher, where, and part of your, you know, whether you're teaching writing or, um, you know, another subject area, your lens is clearly like, let's all get present. Let's get real. Let's be here now. How do you, I'm so curious, how do you, as, as a teacher in the classroom, as a professor, how do you navigate that these days?
1: So there's a couple of things that come to mind. So the first thing is on the first day, I, you know, we all gathered in the class and I said, look, here's the deal. I... And this is true. I read a study that said, and I'm not sure I can't cite it right now, that said that when people had their cell phones taken away from them, the same sort of neurons were activated when a lover left the room or when, you know, they fell out of love or when when a lover exited their life. And I found that shocking. I mean, just absolutely shocking. So I told my students about the study. And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave our cell phones in our bag and we're going to come to this class with our hearts broken. And let's start there. And they all just looked at me, right? And they were... But but in, in I, I saw something flicker. You know, I saw them think, yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's be here, right? And that was my way of saying come vulnerable, come without the phone, mm. right? The second thing is that, uh, you know, certainly every now and then one of the kids would like sneak the little, you know, text to a friend or whatever. But mostly I committed to conducting a class that was captivating enough, that was engaging enough, that was demanding enough that they didn't have the time they didn't think about the phone right they sort of uh conversation that's so um that's asking so much of them that's asking for so much of their presence and i and i made i tried to make sure of that mm-hmm. every time we walked into class you know i said let's let's you know talk about this non-Western woman's life and let's get into it. Let's peel off the layers. I mean, be with me here because you can't come on this journey with me if you're sort of here or kind of here or if some of you is here. All of you must be here because this is a human life. And the only way to understand a life is to give of all of yours to it, you know, truly. And so I, I, you know, I don't know if I demanded it or if I if I demanded it of them or if I demanded it of myself mm. that we make class time so robust that there is no room for that cell phone. So that was the the two sort of, you know, ways I approached it. And um by and large they were there. Yeah. Sans cell phone. Right. Yeah.
0: I, I guess it kind of becomes self-selecting pretty quickly. Like yeah, for sure. You're either in or you're going to drop. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. But if you're in, you're in. Like, you know the rules. The rules of the game are clear. There's a reverence for the moment and the material, and that's how we roll.
1: Yes, that's right. And 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 in in a lot of ways, I think maybe because they are so comfortable with the phone that perhaps – they understood this is this is conjecture on my part, but they understood that there's a time to put it away. Mm. Right. And there's a there is a time for it, but there's also a time to put it away. And I remember uh, they were doing their final projects about a non-Western woman in their life. And um, so many of them chose to pull up this individual's Instagram account and show pictures that way. And I thought, well, here we are. We're, we're now reentering this, you know, social media world. But that's great. Because they're saying, here's this woman who lives in Saudi Arabia. Look at her Instagram. And that's how they're connecting. Mm. Um, While at the same time, they're able to put it away when needed. So maybe they have a healthier relationship with it. That is my obviously insanely uh, naive hope. Um, (laughs) But perhaps.
0: But but I I mean, I wonder about that. I wonder if it really is naive. I wonder. I have this sense that. We are like we're walking around looking for somebody to not only give us permission but but demand. Like create a space that that requires us to put that thing down. Years ago, I, I ran a yoga studio, and, mm-hmm. and we had a kid yoga program. We had like you know like tiny little kids in a yoga class, uh-huh. and at the end of every class, the teacher would have them all lie on like a little mini yoga mat in a circle with their feet in the middle and little bean bag sandbag things on their <laughs> eyes. And they would just lie there, you know, for a solid five to seven minutes, oh. and and I remember, not infrequently, the parents would get there a little bit early to pick up the kid, and they would look peek into the room, and they would look at us and they're like, "What have you done to my child? Like, are you are they drugged? What's what's?" <laughs> they're like, "How how are, is it possible that they're laying there just completely at peace, relaxed, without any stimuli? And and we're like. Because we created the environment where we just said this is, this is what we do now, and it was almost like they were waiting for somebody to say this is how, yet yeah, this is the moment, like this is what you do, and it, you know, and I almost wonder if we're so jacked up on connectivity right yeah. now, and we don't have the capacity to sort of create that space ourselves. So when somebody else says, okay, this is the moment, you know, you're probably you know like on the surface you grumbly, but yeah. underneath it you're like. Oh, cool! Thank you.
1: God, I wonder if we yearn for it. Yeah, I think we might certainly.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and well, I hope we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it would. It's such a human thing to want that connectedness. The, the the actual physical, you know, feet in the middle, the beanbag on the eyes. I mean, all of that is so necessary. You know, staring at a screen is not necessary, right? And so when that necessary thing presents itself, offers itself, perhaps it's all we've ached for. Mm.
2: You know?
0: Yeah with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So we kind of moved forward pretty quickly. Let's. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit, and we'll we'll trace <laughs> our way back to the current. Um, when last we had visited, on you had arrived in <laughs> Virginia you're seven years old, and you're making your way as a kid, um, having some sort of basic language, but also, what's it like, sort of like being thrown into um, a school, surrounded by a whole bunch of new kids, completely different culture too? Because it sounds like there was no preparation on how sort of like American culture is different. It was just like, okay, here you go,
1: right? You know. Um, I have to tell you, I don't I was in a public school,, yeah. but um what was extraordinary, uh, certainly even at the time, but certainly in retrospect, is that they assigned uh, this public school, assigned my sister and I, a teacher who would pull us out of um, the English lesson, right, when the rest of the class was doing the English lesson, and she would teach us English. I mean, Almost for me, um, my sister's older, so she knew more English, but certainly for me, it felt like the ground up um, with the alphabet and, you know, and I cannot imagine that without that teaching, without her commitment, and uh, I still remember her face, her smile and her encouragement. I don't know if I would have fallen in love with the languages I have. Mm. And it was such a, it, it, it was just an amazing gesture to offer us you know uh my you know we were emigrated to the country and and it was a public school i can't imagine they would have that much funding and yet they gave us that that teacher and you know she really dedicated that hour or two whatever it was to truly you know allowing space for me to to love the language fall in love with it and once that happened then reading the reading began. And that just became a, you know, universe unto itself for me. And I haven't, not, have not stopped since. I have a book with me at all times. Mm. Uh, there is not a single day I can r- recall when I haven't been reading at some point in some book,
0: usually fiction. So have there been books that you feel have been really pivotal in, <laughs> in you and in your life and your lens on the world?
1: Um, certainly. I, so, so the first book I recall reading in the United States, um, was A Last on the Prairie uh, by Laura Ingalls well, Wilder. Yeah. yeah. In that book, I saw a little bit of myself. Oddly, right? But here, I mean, I, I really, I can't remember exactly, but I think Laura was as well. In the book, about six or seven. So about the same age as me. And here she is, you know, sort of... doing to a
0: new world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: traveling in a wagon. And I happened to arrive on a plane. It made no difference. We were just both on new land, in a new country, you know. And so I recognize a lot of myself in her. So I turned, I've turned to that book many times in my life. Uh, and I think I find it that it was quite formative. So that's the earliest book I can recall. And then as the achievers, yeah, you have to to just get through it, (laughs) get to the other side. And then I am now I feel like I'm quite dedicated to reading a lot of translated work and a lot of non-American, non-Western literature. Just to see the breadth and diversity of how people tell stories, how they see the world, how they envision a better one or a worse one. I mean, all these things change dramatically when you change the lens from Western to non-Western, right? Or even non-English, you know, anything translated. So it's been a great, great journey. And I'm sure as I go f- on in my life, um, this my reading taste will evolve, hopefully,
0: along with the years. Yeah. Do you have a sense for whether the fact that you come from India to the U.S., um, gives you the realization that, um, okay, so now I'm reading all the prescribed stuff that everybody reads, you know, Steinbeck's and Hemingway's, like mm-hmm. canon of white men, that because of your young upbringing and because of your family, that you an ingrained deep awareness that, yes, but there's so much more out there. Like you just, you you had the experience of knowing that this is not the way that like it is done, but this is just one representative sample of the way it can be done.
1: Indeed. And I think... Um, what I appreciated about the canon of white men was that, you know, on a sentence level, you know, you'd hit a sentence and think, oh, mm. this is what literature can do. This is what words can do. Right. So deep appreciation on the sentence level and and what they were doing with language and all of that. But there existed in me a sense that they're not telling my story I don't recognize myself in this guy sitting in a bullfight in Spain or this guy, you know, swimming through the suburban, you know, Westchester community through all the swimming pools. You know, I mean, I don't I don't recognize myself in this. I appreciate it on the level of artistry and language, but not as speaking to my story, to my reality, even my imagination. Right. I wanted a story that spoke to my very unique flavor of loneliness my growing up a girl in the world and a brown one at that and what are the things i'm gonna have to fight for that i am fighting for and why don't i see it in these books and that's i think the richness of literature is the discovery of that voice finally that speaks to you to your story
0: when did you start to reach into that side of literature? When did you start to find those stories? Because it sounds like it was probably something that you had to then take on yourself.
1: Um, I think, you know, just I, I can't name a, a book, but I do know that reading Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, right? Um, certainly, you know, still off the very beautifully in off the Western canon, but, you know, finally here was a little girl that I thought, oh, okay, now it's not a man, you know, a middle-aged man anymore, white man anymore. Here is a girl who's lost, speaking to another girl who's lost. And from that, and, you know, even sort of Harper Lee with To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, Scout, I mean, in some ways spoke to me about what it is to discover a world that's not quite right and not quite good to those that don't fit the ideal of the male white gaze, right? And so the more girls, the more women, the more melanin that entered my life, the more the world started becoming richer and more um familiar and recognizable to me through literature. And that's, you know, I don't I don't necessarily I should say I now I just read Everything, mm. right? So I read everything from Roberto Bolaño to Alfred Jelinek to, you know, Kamala Markandeya. I mean, I just read whatever I can get my get my hands on, and I enjoy the pleasure of arriving into a book almost by chance. But I think that's you know that's our only kingdom is what we choose to read, mm. and and so I reach far and wide.
0: Yeah, um, I love that sort of like the breath, And it's, I have this sense of a lot of creative minds sort of doing this dance between going narrow and deep and then pulling out and going wide, you know, like going broad and getting this vast expanse of sort of like data and interaction and experience uh-huh. and story and then going narrow and deep and sort of like alternating, like moving. There's this ebb and flow between those two states and and the ability to sort of, you know, like, go into, you know, one or the other is what yeah. makes everything okay. But if you get stuck in one, everything stops working the way it needs to work.
1: Absolutely. And, and you don't, you don't uh, get the richness of it all, right? And even like reading um, Richard Adams, you know, Watership Down, I'm like, why does a rabbit speak to me? You know, why does a rabbit named, you know, Hazel, <laughs> why is it, does this rabbit sort of able to access that fight in me, you know, in a way that a human character hasn't yet.
0: Yeah. So yeah. as you're, um, growing up, developing this fierce love of books and literature and exploring different worlds, the obvious choice then is to go to college for engineering. <laughs> 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 yeah. what, so what happened there?
1: <laughs> it was just a very pragmatic, okay. and I think this is a, you know, a, a, a A huge impulse in immigrant families is to do the pragmatic thing. um, To do like a
0: handful of like okay career paths. Exactly. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And understandably so, right? It's a it's a it's a alien country, and you want to have all the resources possible to succeed Hmm. right within it because you don't have the sort of infrastructure you would back home, right? The support of relatives or the culture or whatever. So a little bit unmoored here. And so certainly financial security is a good way of building, um, uh, of setting down roots
0: and building a life. And then of course, from there, the next logical move is law school.
1: (laughs) You know, I want to say uh, that was driven by really two impulses. One was to, um, you know, help people, you know, and I thought, what better way to help people than to help them navigate this, the system that can be quite cruel Mm. and quite uh, draconian. And then the other was, I thought they would have a lot more writing (laughs) in it. Um, And certainly, you know, the law is in some ways a love affair with words. Every law is written except for perhaps moral law. Um, and
0: Intentionally, ambiguously. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Certainly. And so, uh, and it does have a lot of writing, but it was not, you know, obviously not creative writing, which is what I, you know, my heart had wanted and, and sort of thought, oh, I can, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll, you know, it still has writing in it, but it didn't quite meet the mark. Yeah. So,
0: it's, uh, so you and I actually share, uh, I, I went to law school and practiced law for- Oh,
1: did you? What kind of uh, for law?
0: five years, securities law.
1: Oh, the easy stuff.
0: Oh yeah, really easy. Um, but um, yeah, it was interesting to me. I am, I, um, and I'm a writer now also. So it was interesting for me to experience writing in school because I had no early. I wasn't much of a reader when I was young. I wasn't a writer. I had no. You know, I I knew that, in upon reflection, any time I could take a course in college where my grade was based on writing. Mm-hmm. I would do that and I would pretty much always do exceptionally well, but it never clicked in me that, you know, like, oh, maybe this is something to explore. Like maybe there's <laughs> some affinity or, or ability there. So when I went to law school and I was exposed to, it's very formulaic, you know, like the, the, yes, you write, but you know, I still remember, you know, like the, you know, like issue rule, application, application, inclusion. Yes. It's like, <laughs> here's the formula. Do this on everything you write and all will be right in the world. That's you right. Know? Yes. Yes. And, um, and I remember I said, okay, I get it. It's a game. I'll I'll memorize a formula. I'll master the formula. I did that. I did well. And then I got out and I started practicing and the writing was all still the same. And I I was like, oh my God, can I just split an infinitive (laughs) place? You know, can I, can I, it was, it felt so stifling. I said, I was so, I was grateful for you know the education. I was grateful for learning how to deconstruct and construct rational arguments and understand these things, and for understanding how to put together words in a way that was logical and progressive,
1: and precise um, and
0: precise. Yeah, um, or sometimes very like intentionally not, not precise, precise. You're right, <laughs> but but always with purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as I could stop doing that, I was the happiest person in the world. <laughs>
1: That's great. No, I, I had a similar experience. Uh, you know, one moment I remember is when um, I was writing I don't, a memoranda of some sort. And I was like, wait, and I had a sentence. And the managing attorney was like, you have to cite the case law to support the sentence. And I'm like, oh, I do? I'm like, but it's such a pretty <laughs> sentence. Like, can't we just leave it? At, you know, and it's, and it was like, but no. You say it
0: aloud. The rhythm is perfect. <laughs>
1: And I was like, oh, you know, maybe this is not, this is not going to fulfill that
0: writing bug in me. So yeah, it, it dawned on me. But at the same time, like you said, that, that wasn't, you know, you had your two reasons. One was the writing, but the other was, it seemed like there was a very strong, um, activist cause that was really sort of rising up in you and saying, I need to be of service to a particular population of people in a particular way.
1: Yeah. And I, and I, you know, sort of sought that out, um, in my work, uh, and eventually ended up being a legal advocate for victims of domestic violence. And um, that was, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how fulfilling and um, traumatic (laughs) that was. But uh, it, in fact, was also the most um, life-affirming, absolutely humbling, uh, exhilarating uh, job of my life. Uh, I would meet women, and they were most often women, who were being abused by their intimate partners, husbands. And just to witness their resilience, their generosity, the warmth that they managed to retain in the face of, you know, daily unpredictable violence perpetrated by those who were supposed to love them you know it i knew immediately what i needed to write uh once i left that job i knew was and have been ever since laser focused on what i needed to write and for whom i was writing it every single word tell me more you know i i thought so much of literature it seemed that i had read and certainly written the one Books written by men, you know, either, either the woman was a sexual object or she was not. She was fetishized or she was not. So many s- seem to fit into this binary, right? I wanted to bring the complexity, the just superhuman strength that women display on a daily basis, whether in middle of New York City or in a refugee camp in Yemen. It just seemed to me that women almost casually carry around a kind of courage and bravery in the face of just horrific violence and trauma and yet manage to keep houses together, manage to raise children, manage to bring love forth into the world. And that is what I wanted to document almost and i didn't want to flinch in writing about what i see is the truth of many women's lives
0: mm. when you write that that kind of book who are you writing to
1: ah uh, foremost to myself mm. to give myself the courage right and then i think in the hope that as literature did for me that somebody somewhere will read it and think, here she is. Here's the one I was, I've been looking for, that character or that, that story that truly speaks, that sort of one turns to, right, time and time again and thinks, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. And that seems to be the greatest task of literature is to make us feel less alone, In the world, and literature did that for me. And if one of my books can do that for one person, that's a life well lived Mm. for myself as a writer.
0: I'm, it's interesting. I'm thinking of, um, of your newest book, Girls Burn Brighter. And, um, you know, what's, I mean, beyond the beauty of the craft that goes into it and the depth, um, you know, a beautiful storytelling there is, you know, this is, this is very raw. This is very real. And, you know, it's pull no punches. It's like, mm-hmm. this is the reality of certain people, especially of certain color skin in certain parts of the world of certain genders. Um, when you're and, and it's interesting also because you sort of, you navigate two different worlds. You know, you start in one world and then navigate mm-hmm. to to the Western world. When when you're writing a book like this, how do you know, how do you know how far to go? Huh.
1: Um, I. <sighs> There's a whole Tibetan saying. I, I'm, I don't know the an actual Tibetan, but I think it translates something like this far and no further. And it's an internal sense, right? That I will go this far and no further. And it's not just my journey through the book and into the lives of the characters, but a sort of keen awareness of how far I can take the reader into a moment of incredible violence or incredible distress and when I lose them right if I go further then I'll lose them and so it's it's you know a a very sensitive sort of trigger in inside and it's individual to each writer right but it's a, it's a very delicate trigger which tells me okay this is good because you're not uh you know, the violence isn't being fetishized. It's not being exploited. But you're I'm, I, I have to know that I'm not, um that I am honoring the story, that I'm honoring what's happening to these girls and that I'm not going to look away because it's getting a little difficult or because it's getting a little dark. Because as you say, this is the reality for many, many women and girls in the world. And yet I'm writing to readers who I want to give agency to imagine the rest. And I think that's how we engage the reader, right? Is to leave just enough out, uh, so that they're prompted, their imaginations are fired up by the writing. So again, we I think every writer walks that that line. And arguably I've, you know, shifted into a darker kind of territory in some ways, but that is where we're truly revealed. I think that's how characters become human. And yeah, I think it's during the moments when we're cornered that we are, show our true selves. And so I want to corner my uh, characters.
0: Mm. And yourself?
1: Um, You know, <laughs> that's, Certainly. Yeah. Emotionally. Yeah. I I don't put myself into dangerous physical situations, but I do take great chances emotionally, I think, and thereby spiritually. And I don't shy away from a kind of vulnerability that could be dangerous. I find it to be necessary.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think um, it feels like it also, you know, it, it, it depends upon how any person who is in the creative domain, what they see their role is. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know people who see their role purely as the provocator and shatterer. Ah. You know, like I need to break the glass. I need to like, my job is to allow you to see as as clearly as possible the reality of the world around you. Even if it's horrendous, even uh-huh. if it's horrifying. And then let you figure out from that. Like my job is not to, is just to remove the illusion. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I think everybody feels like, like my job as a writer, yes, I, you know, like I care about language, I care about the craft, I care about story. And, but, um, you know, one of the things that I've experienced is in, in having so many amazing conversations over the years is even in a conversation like this, um, you know, or if I'm having a conversation and somebody's sharing a story that is, Um, that is filled with their own experience of violence or danger or Mm -hmm. suffering, that there is a line where um, if we can have that conversation in a way where the listener can fully understand it and yet still feel safe in the conversation, still feel safe in the listening experience, the, the work has been done. But there's a line where you cross where the listener no longer feels safe and at that point, they shut down. Um, ah. And I wonder if you feel like there's a similar line in, in writing, in the the written work.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the the line is constantly shifting, yeah. right? Like the borders between countries are constantly shifting. And I think part of the writer's task is to keep pushing against that border and keep – and, and constantly – you know, perhaps just the borders of the heart. I mean, then just say, let me in a little bit deeper into it. Let me let me access the dangerous places. Right. And ultimately, that's what a good story does. Right. It 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 swells our hearts. It allows more blood to gush through it. You know, that's um, and thereby more feeling for ourselves and our fellow man. Right. And that is a good story. And every great story, novel, short story, that poem I've read has enriched me in ways I can, that makes me just shiver with, you know, incredible gratitude and pleasure. And sentences have done that. Words have done that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? The right word in the right place can be ennobling. So yeah, I want. To honor the border by pushing against it and saying we can be greater, hmm. we can be more vast, right? We can open ourselves up to more of the world.
0: Uh, I think. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you know one of the great things that literature does is um, it sort of uh, it it reconnects us to our own humanity, mm-hmm. not then that's what i heard not necessarily your point no reports. that's
1: exactly right though yeah
0: but um and and i what i hear you saying also is that it it also you know like it it reconnects us to the humanity and others allows us to see our, ourselves in others too which um man do we need at this moment <laughs> in our history
1: absolutely and you know we've certainly always needed it it's just become much more um, it's it's gone into crisis mode right yeah. this this need to not demonize the other to see ourselves. If you look into the eyes of another, you cannot but recognize something of yourself. And it's not enough to read it about others in a tweet or to see them on a screen or to, you know, have them all lumped into this uh, desperate, you know, flow of humanity just trying to Destroy our country or something. It's, we are all deeply connected. And to not know that is to deny the greatest truth, right? And I can't, I can't imagine what it is that allows us to look away from a piece of news like a seven year old dying. In one of the, you know, migrant camps cages along the U.S. border. If we look away, we've lost ourselves utterly. That's just today's news.
0: Mm. And, but I think part of the answer is in exactly that the the cycle has become so rapid that yeah you know, the risk is that we become you know as Pink Floyd famously said comfortably numb. <laughs> um, yes. Because of the, it's like exposure therapy and exposure therapy when you're trying to move through something which is causing you anxiety and pain, which you know, like should not be, um, is a good thing. But exposure therapy in the context of something which should continue to cause great distress right. and, and slowly removes the experience of distress is not a good thing because then you don't respond. Then you feel like you either just become so, you know, like you, you give up because you feel like nothing can be done or... Um, I mean, but in the context of zooming the lens back out and the uh-huh. idea of like you as a writer and, and and the role of literature in moments like this, it's interesting too, because it feels like I, I wonder if, you know, when I think of great writing, of great books, of great literature, I also think, you know, of longer than 140 characters or 280 <laughs> characters now vastly expanded, right? Um, and and I, I sometimes wonder, you know, like, is... Am I just like a stuffy old dude who is like, well, you know, to really have the, the richness of the storytelling and be moved to the point where I can see myself in letters, all the yada, yada, you know, I need a long, deep, you know, like beautifully conveyed yeah. piece or like, can you, is there a way to accommodate, you know, like dramatically shorten attention spans these days and learn how to craft language to tell stories? Can you actually create legitimate, can you create words that do the job of true literature in the, in, in sort of like the, the moments, the short windows that we have now or that we, we, we choose to have now to consume whatever's put in front of us.
1: Well, you know, I have two thoughts. The one is, why must we? Right? I mean, why, why can't, why shouldn't we demand looking away from the phone and, and, you know, reading a book or reading a poem? And, you know, why should we ever relinquish That demand, but also that, you know, asking of another, like just saying, look, this is a true story cannot be encompassed in whatever you're staring at on the screen. The true story exists between the pages of this book or, or, you know, between, between the, this grove of trees that I ask you to walk through, right? There's that first thought, right? The impulse. But then the second thought is that famous, the six-word short story, yeah, yeah. right? The, the for sale baby shoes never yeah. worn. It's been done. It's got everything okay, in that, it's,
0: those six words. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So it's been done. It will continue be, to be done. It's just harder to put an arc mm. and a plot and, a you know, all the elements of good storytelling into a shorter piece, um, which is why, you know, writing short stories is a uniquely difficult uh, journey. Uh, versus a novel, which is difficult in different ways. But the, the, the shortened base makes, um, forces the language to be more precise. And the shorter and shorter it gets, the more weight, the more gravity each word has to um, embody and encompass. So certainly it can be done. But why must we? Why can't we just again the naive naivete? Right? Why, why can't we read?
0: Uh, is it naivete or 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 is it um, clear thinking?
1: <laughs> I'm gonna vote for the latter. I would too. I <laughs>
0: would too. As you sort of uh, you know, you've taught you know over the years different things. And, you know, as we sit here today, this is the first time you're actually teaching in a sort of semester-long structured college format. So moving from spending like tremendous number of hours in in your mind, in your own world, writing and creating to this very structured academic environment where you've got, you know, like a room full of wide-eyed freshmen yeah, (laughs) sitting there. Do you have a hope for how your students will be changed during your time with them? And if so, what might it be?
1: Funny that you ask, because one of my students came to office hours about like mid-semester and... I'm not aware of any of the students in my class being creative writing majors, right? I, they're freshmen. Most of them don't know what they're going to major in. This is a required class, right? And they're taking it. That's all great. But this one student came to me in the, somewhere in the middle and she said, you know, it's not what necessarily, you know, each of the books that we're reading or the articles and it's just the way your face lights up when you're talking about literature, and she said, "It's just you just become luminous." And, you know, of course, I'm just giddy because I, you know, I'm like, of course, literature. I mean, the minute I start talking about it, I'm just so, um, just so thrilled. And I think I realized after that talk with her that that is what I want to convey to them, right? That you can be passionately engaged with an art form that it can provide meaning and shape to your life that that is a life well lived and that it doesn't matter what it is that passion as long as it's feeding you as long as it's you know you're living a life uh, filled with inspiration and awe that is what passion that is what art can do You don't have to pick mine, right? You don't have to pick literature, but pick something. Because you can light up a room, you can light up a life with that kind of engagement, passionate engagement, um, with something outside of yourself, with something that you can create. And if that's all I've quote-unquote taught them, if all they get out of this is this memory of this woman sitting there lighting up the room with her love of literature, that that is is possible in in 2018, (laughs) you know, then I consider myself having succeeded.
0: Hmm. It's funny because I was just going to come full circle and ask you, what it means to you to live a good life, but I think you just answered the question.
1: (laughs) I think I might have. I hope I have.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: It's been my pleasure.